Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these history hangouts, we like to introduce you to researchers who have received support in the, in the form of research grants and fellowships from the Hagley Center. One such researcher joining me today is Ben Schneider, and we'll be discussing his dissertation project, Technological Change and Work. Dr. Schneider is currently a research fellow at the Work Research Institute at Oslo Metropolitan University. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Oh, that's great. Why don't you introduce us to your research topic? What, it, uh, what is it that you're working on and writing about? Sure. So, so what I'm interested in talking about today and the research I did at the, the Hagley a couple of years ago, um, and will hopefully be returning to do a little bit more work on later this year, mm -hmm. um, was part of my PhD thesis at Oxford, where I looked at um, the impact of the broad question was basically the impact of technology on jobs. And I looked historically at some case studies from the um, late 18th century into the early 20th century. So your classic first into second industrial revolution period. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the basic question I asked was, how does technology change jobs? And I looked at it on three dimensions. So one is the quality of jobs. And I developed a new methodology for um, analyzing the quality of occupations in history, um, as well as the number of jobs available. So you can think of sort of how, how does employment numbers change with, uh, with technology and also the characteristics of the workforce, more or less basic mm -hmm. demographics of age, gender, and skill. Um, and you know, so, so that was essentially the project using, using a, few different, a few different case studies. Uh, to take maybe a, a step or a half step back, um, mm -hmm. there's a sort of a few different strands of motivation that go into this project. Um, there's a historical motivation. So listeners may be familiar with um, classic debates from history and economic history about basically what's the impact of the industrial revolution, which roughly divide on the lines of what are called optimists and pessimists. So the optimists are people who would say um, primarily rising wages through industrialization led to higher living standards on some dimensions that we can measure. Whereas pessimists would say essentially that while there may have been higher wages for some workers, those would have been uh, offset by having to work in uh, work for long hours, working in a factory, greater occupational risks of disease and so on. And, and that can um, go across a number of dimensions, whether it's just in the workplace or also the fact that people had to move to cities, overcrowding, again, disease comes in as a factor there as well. Um, so that's sort of the historical motivation. What's the um, change in quality of life? And I focus on quality of jobs or work-related well-being um, caused by industrialization. And then there's a sort of recent contemporary motivation, which is uh, what's sometimes called by economists job polarization or hollowing out. So mm. since about the 1970s, um, there's been a decline in the number of good middle-class jobs in rich countries. Um, and this comes up in political debates whenever we hear people talking about uh, creating good jobs, good middle-class jobs, where have the jobs gone? Well, one of, the, one of the causes of that that economists have identified um, is technological change, primarily the information communications technological revolution. So that's sort of the recent contemporary motivation. And then the forward-looking motivation is something listeners will probably also be very familiar with, which is debates about the uh, potential for automation in the future. What impact is artificial intelligence potentially going to have on, uh, on employment? So... I was trying to situate the, the research um, um, across these three polls and, and speak to these, um, these three debates using this uh, historical evidence. 
Well, it sounds like a, a really fascinating project and also very ambitious. Uh, there were there were quite a lot of things that I had to sort of get my head around and uh, a lot of a lot of material that I had to look through and uh, um, the Hagley was certainly very, very useful for that, especially the collections on uh, 19th century American railroads. Um, but yeah, to, maybe to, to move sort of into the methodology and how, how does one um, uh, capture these capture these different um, aspects of, of changes in occupations? I mean, the, mm -hmm. the most, as I said uh, before, maybe the most or the most novel part of the thesis was, was trying to construct a measure of job quality. So mm -hmm. this is something that's been done increasingly by um, modern day contemporary researchers working for um, sometimes trade unions, sometimes the International Labor Organization, um, other NGOs or international NGOs, um, essentially because of that, that second motivation that I mentioned, which is this decline in the number of good middle-class jobs. So they've tried to look at what are the ways in which we can measure what the ILO sometimes refers to as, or frequently refers to as decent work. Um, and that's also been embodied in or embedded in um, political goals of international organizations like the UN in the Sustainable Development Goals and the European Union in their European Pillar of Social Rights. So once it becomes a political priority, then there are attempts to try and measure it in contemporary contexts. And that takes a few different dimensions in these, in these modern day measures. They usually incorporate uh, pay, hours, some different measures of labor rights, working conditions, um, sometimes what we might call subjective measures of well-being. So how good do people, people feel about their jobs? Do they mm. derive enjoyment from them? Mm. And um, essentially what I was trying to do is parallel these contemporary measures with, uh, with a historical measure. Um, it's you know, difficult to do some of those and um, just the sources are different. So in contemporary uh, studies, they do large scale surveys of thousands and thousands of workers. Um, we can't do that as historians, so I had to come up with some parallel method for, for capturing um, job-related well-being. So what I basically did, uh, the, the, the idea behind it was to say, what can we tell about what, um, what workers were interested in in their jobs? What's the evidence from history of why did people go on strike, for example? What were the causes of strikes? Or what did they petition the government over? Or were there wage premia that companies had to pay for specific, um, less desirable aspects of jobs? Mm -hmm. So to do, do, or using that, using that approach, um, I come up with a, this index, which has eight components of job quality. And then in the different historical examples, gather evidence. So for example, when I was using the Hagley collection, some of the material I looked at was, or some of the, what's maybe more conventional economic history material would be things like, um, payrolls or um, you know, wage ledgers that would say uh, this worker on say the Pennsylvania Railroad worked a certain number of days and then was paid a certain amount for doing a specific occupation. But the, one of the things I was trying to do was go beyond what's been a traditional focus of economic historians on hours and on wages and to extend it into other, other dimensions. So for example, how secure was employment in the past? How likely were people actually to be paid? So that's, again, material that one can find in archival collections where companies will say, um, you know, payroll is paid to our employees every month or every two weeks. Or maybe we have a shortage of, uh, shortage of coinage and we can't actually pay them um, with that frequency. So those are some examples of, um, you know, places where, where one can find this information about, uh, about job quality in the past. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, with that, with that sort of um, underpinning, 
then what I did once I got into the, the case studies was, or what I found once I was looking through the, the archival material is there, are, I guess, a few different, what we might call high level phenomena that, that, that come out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is a fairly straightforward um, finding that's been discussed in some um, modern day discussion or modern day books about the potential for future automation. And this, this is sometimes called the race between productivity and demand. Mm-hmm. So there's some innovation that comes into the market and it raises productivity. What's the effect on employment? Well, it's a, it's a contest between how much productivity goes up and how much demand for the product changes. So if it's uh, in, the, in the cases that I look at, which are spinning, so producing yarn in part of the textile industry and transportation, there are a few different um, outcomes in those cases. So in spinning, this is pre in, in, in a pre-industrial setting is um, quite what we think of as now is like quite low productivity. Um, there'd been very little technological change before the late 1700s in the United Kingdom. And then when uh, factory technology is introduced, there's a huge expansion or a huge increase in productivity. And in part because of that, prices collapse. So demand does go up. People can purchase more textiles, but it doesn't go up enough to offset the fact that productivity has risen rapidly over a few decades. And what that produces is what economists call technological unemployment. So there's some technological change in that that leads to people being um, thrown out of work. Um, but that's to not, the Luddites sorry, sorry. Uh, in the case of spinning. Yeah, so, so that is actually one of the cases even, um, even before the 18th century. So in the late 17th century, there are cases of machine breaking. Mm. And there are other examples in, for example, the, in agriculture with threshing machines. Um, listeners may be familiar with what are, what are called the Captain Swing riots. Um, and then also later in the, in the 19th century, what, the, there are some similar instances of machine breaking that happen with, um, with handloom weavers or handloom weavers are destroying power looms. Mm-hmm. But the, the sort of economic and technological underpinnings are similar in a sense where you have workers who see that there's this big, there's these machines coming in, there's a huge increase in productivity and there's not enough, there's then not enough work to keep all those people, all those people employed. Mm-hmm. So that's one there's that race between productivity and demand, but it doesn't always happen that way. So if we, if we go across to um, the Western side of the Atlantic Ocean in the US, there was relatively little um, pre-industrial textile production that was for the market. So people obviously wore clothes and they did spin, but it would tended to be either for their own household purposes um, or they bought in clothing from imports. Uh, which basically meant that when you have people like um, Samuel Slater and later uh, Francis Cabot Lowell establishing the first American textile mills, they're not throwing large numbers of people out of work who would have been doing this as a, as a job. There's the hmm. evidence from the historical account books is, and it was generally women and sometimes in the UK children who, who um, spun and produced yarn. Um, these were jobs that were sort of almost odd jobs that people did here and there. So they did earn income from it, but was, it wasn't really an occupation. So what happens in the United States then is there's a substitution of domestic factory produced textiles for these British imports, which means that the, the um, course of that race between rising productivity and demand is very different. And you actually don't see the same technological unemployment. In transportation, that has such a, uh, it has a very different effect as well, because there, there's a contribution of, of new transportation innovations like canals and railroads to overall economic growth. 
And as they incorporate more areas of the United States into the national market, it basically, it's a, it's a, you can think of it as sort of a positive feedback loop. So mm -hmm. even though railroads somewhat offset employment and canals, they expand so rapidly and employ so many more people and they contribute to broader economic growth, which in itself can contribute to more demand for railroad services means that there is uh, again, a more positive picture in that case. So it's, you know, it's an example of how those, we can have a, maybe a high level um, concept from, from economics that sort of uh, is, seems quite straightforward, but the, but the um, actual effects on people will vary widely depending on the historical example and the sector in which uh, technology is adopted. Mm. Did you have other case studies besides textiles and transport? So it's, it's, it's uh, I divide uh, textile sort of in two because it's mm. two, two country cases. Mm -hmm. um, and then tr in transportation, I, I just look at the US. So it's, it's a fairly detailed examination of, of those three examples. Um, mm -hmm. There's, uh, and, you know, tr I try to try to examine it in, um, in the course of these, uh, these, these different components of the methodology. So the, mm -hmm. that first one race between productivity and demand is really about um, what I mentioned before, the, the, basically the numbers of people employed. Um, if we shift to thinking about the quality of jobs, the second big uh, sort of big idea, big contribution to the thesis is um, what I call a job stratification hypothesis. So here it's important to have sort of a distinction between different kinds of technology. So um, here I'm drawing on work that economists and economic historians have done to divide uh, inventions between uh, macro inventions and micro inventions. And first, we'll talk a little bit about macro inventions. You can think of this as big bang technological changes. So the railroad is, a, is an example here, but the factory can also be an example, or the steam engine can be an example that fit into that, um, that fit into that box. And what I argue is that um, macro inventions tend to increase the range of tasks um, in a sector and firms then respond to them by dividing those tasks into more task bundles. So basically, if you have um, a set of occupational labels or descriptors um, before a technological change, that'll be relatively few. And then there's some new technology that comes in and there are way, way more different occupations. The easiest example of this is probably the, um, the transportation case or the most dramatic example. Mm -hmm. So you go from in the early 19th century, uh, overland transportation is provided normally by um, coachmen or wagoneers, and this might be one person occasionally paying for services from uh, a wheelwright or um, a wainwright or um, a blacksmith, someone like that. And then um, there are a few workers who might be maintaining uh, the roads and bridges, but that's, there are not very many of them. There might be a few laborers, teamsters, and carpenters. By the time you get to railroads in the middle of the 19th century, mm -hmm. you have, among other things, listeners might be familiar with the first organizational charts. And you have this because there's a huge profusion of different kinds of occupations, whether it's the people who are on the train. So you have obviously your engine men, what we now call engineers, firemen, conductors, brakemen in the station, lots of different station personnel, agents, porters, and so on, people selling tickets. There's a whole railroad bureaucracy. There are people who manage the movement of trains on switches and dispatchers. And there's, I, I can't even, I don't even have time to sort of go through the whole list, but you can think about all these different jobs that come along with um, adopting 
and implementing this new technology. So what's the impact on job quality? Well, basically what happens is there's, there's sort of a double-edged effect in that you have the creation of a lot of new jobs. Um, the worst jobs tend to improve a little, but not terribly much. There are some very good jobs at the top. So you can think of those as being railroad executives who get quite high pay. Um, their conditions are very safe. They have um, a lot, relatively high level of control over their work. Um, but also there's some jobs that are very dangerous at the bottom. And the classic example here is a railroad brakeman who's jumping from car to car, frequently thrown off, injured, killed in accidents, um, losing hands and limbs. So there's this, this uh, increasing inequality of uh, work-related well-being, which goes along aside more opportunities for different types of jobs. Um, so that's, that's what I refer to as, as job stratification. And it also happens in the, in the textile example where you have basically, um, you know, I look at it in, in, in that example, you can think of it other examples of factory processes where um, hand techniques are replaced by um, factory processes. And that means there's a greater range of tasks. There have to be people who uh, monitor the machinery, but also maintain it, tweak it who oversee other people in the, uh, on the shop floor. So labor discipline is something that comes in with the factory system. And that's a new type of occupation for most of those um, sectors that are industrialized. Um, as well as because there's more activity, you have in a similar way to railroads, white collar jobs, management processes, accounting, and so on and so forth. So the kind of complexity and the range of occupations really, really increases a lot. And the work-related well-being or job quality also stratifies across those different occupations. Mm. Now, <clears throat> pardon me, you mentioned, touched on this briefly, but what collections at the Hagley Library were you able to access and explore to help you uncover the story? Right, so the, the main ones that I, were, I was looking at during my, uh, during my previous research were about, um, were the, the railroad collections. So primarily the Pennsylvania Railroad and the, the Reading Railroad. Um, and these are, as, as any listener who's, who's been to the Hagley and, and uh, looked through the catalogs will know, these are huge collections with just enormous volumes of material um, and have been used by, by many other scholars interested in technology, railroads, labor history, and so on. Um, and so essentially what I was, what I was mainly using them for, um, was for evidence that goes into the, the job quality analysis. Um, I did use them also a little bit for, for the, the, uh, occupational numbers analysis and, um, the distribution of, of work over the workforce. Uh, but I mean, some of the things that, that also, in addition to the, to the, the points that I've, um, mentioned before, something that, that also happens after those sort of big bang technological changes, um, is, when you when there's implementation of, of micro inventions, there's what I call the race between um, uh, productivity and good jobs, mm -hmm. and some of this comes out also in the in in those sources. So basically, and the, maybe the most useful example here because we're talking about Hagley collections is to talk about railroads. Um, so essentially, you have uh, railroads are quite dangerous in the United States in the 19th century, especially in the early 19th century, and um, or in the early part of railroads in the 19th century. Um, and there's a huge amount of interest and effort in trying to improve, to some, well, to some extent, improve safety, but also to improve the productivity of railroads across uh, from the 1830s up until, well, obviously up until now, but certainly up until the, the First World War is the, part that, is the part of the history that I'm looking at. Um, but these, a lot of these changes, which are, 
uh, I refer to as micro inventions because the railroad is sort of the big bang macro invention. Um, they, they have the potential to improve safety um, or, and that potential to improve, 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 improve productivity. But what tends to happen is uh, the railroad managers are focused on productivity rather than safety. So they use these innovations uh, more intensively and that can offset the safety and enhancing effects. So one mm -hmm. example is mm -hmm. relatively straightforward. One would be something like steel rails. So steel rails um, were superior to iron rails in terms of their uh, ability to carry lots of traffic. So if you have a constant volume of traffic, railroad traffic, so same number of cars, same weight of cars going across um, steel rails, there should be fewer accidents. And that's obviously a benefit to, um, it's a benefit to someone who's taking the train, but it's also a benefit to the workers because it improves their occupational safety. However, railroad managers knew that there was, there were these, uh, there was a potential for a productivity benefit as well as a safety benefit. And they could say, well, if we, if we adopt these steel rails, then we can also run heavier and longer trains and carry more goods. Um, so that somewhat at least offset the safety enhancing potential um, of that one specific innovation. And there, you know, there are various other examples. Um, so this happens and there's a, lots, of, lots of other historical work that's been, um, that's been done that looked at, for example, air brakes, um, and you know there's some there's some technological complexities there, but um, but basically uh, there and there are no, there are a number of these uh, examples where um, or maybe a very simple one would be something like um, headlamps on railroads. So again, there mm -hmm. there's a potential for improved safety because um, railroaders can see more easily in low light. But what happens then is they also enable nighttime operation. So that means that workers' hours can be much longer. Mm. Um, so there, there are various examples like that from the from the Hagley collections where you can see that the um, uh, managers are looking for uh, ways in which to run more and longer trains, and the the uh, instead of fully reaping the what we might call the safety benefits of those technological changes, um, they get uh, let's say redistributed. And part of it shows up instead as, as higher productivity. So there's a trade-off between when there's some of these inventions come in, there's a trade-off between greater productivity and more safety. And the incentives of the managers are is tends to be in favor of productivity rather than rather than safety. Hmm. Um, and there are other examples in in in, uh, in the textile industry too, where I've looked in, in other in other archives where basically there's more machinery uh, put into factories for each worker. Um, and that means that workers have to work at a higher intensity. It also does have impacts on safety and, uh, that, but it shows up for, if you're the, the manager of the firm, you can observe that as that increased capital per worker has an impact on, on the productivity of the firm and allows you to keep costs down and compete in these, uh, some of those very competitive, competitive sectors. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's a little bit of a sketch of, uh, you know, another one of the, the big picture findings as well as sort of how that Hagley collections, uh, uh, led to that led to that finding uh, yeah that's great and i wonder if there was a particular source or document in the collection that really stood out to you either either as perhaps a smoking gun illustrating demonstrating your point or perhaps it's uh, surprised you or excited you due to its content um, i'll give you 
uh, maybe one example of what's sort of a smoking gun and another one that was that I just found quite interesting in the context mm-hmm. in which I All saw right. it. So so for the first, it's um, and this kind of is, a, I guess, what this is supposed to be, right, which is a, a glimpse behind the curtain. So mm-hmm. um, before before I did did some work at the Hagley, I'd been looking at um, uh, um, turnpike and road maintenance and then canal maintenance and work um, records in, in other archives. And um, I had been noticing, you know, there are certain occupational titles that would come up, so laborers, teamsters, and so on that I mentioned before. And then canals, you see, I noticed there's a little bit more different job titles that are coming up here that I hadn't seen before. And then looking at the, the payrolls that I mentioned before in the Hagley collections, and there's these huge different array of occupational titles. That was sort of the, to the extent that in, in history, one can have a, a sort of eureka moment. That was a sort of eureka moment of, okay, there's something going on here that there is this huge increase in the number of different jobs um, for doing or providing basically the same service, which is moving mm-hmm. people and stuff around, people and goods around. Um, so that that was my sort of, uh, yes, smoking gun or eureka moment. Sure. Um, there was another, there was another in a very, uh, very different, different type of thing that I also saw in the, I think it was in the Pennsylvania Railroad Collections, um, which was a sort of reminder of how we can, and we can see this sometimes in, in history where we're looking at a specific technology and it seems to be, you know, utterly dominant, but then there's a hint somewhere that then we, we living in, the, for those people, the future or our present will know that things later change. So in the late 19th century, um, some listeners may be familiar with uh, what's called the good roads movement. So this started mm-hmm. with um, cyclists and then drivers who wanted uh, or automobile drivers who wanted uh, America to improve the quality of its roads. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was a petition to uh, Pennsylvania railroad executive saying, would you please um, support this part of the good roads movement where uh, I think they were raising funds for, um, for some political lobbying um, and the internal document letter from one executive to another said something to the effect of, we should not be involved in this. We want there to be roads so that people can get to our railroad stations. <laughs> but if there are roads that will allow people to uh, move between those places, that's competition for us. And we don't want to, to see any part of that. So obviously um, one can see from there that there's a, there's sort of a foreshadowing, which we now know um, became very important in the 20th century that, that those, those uh, pro roads um, lobbyists uh, did, did win out over railroads in the 20th century in the US. So that's yeah. <laughs> one of those things that it's, uh, you, can, you can sort of see some people at the time had an idea of um, the potential of uh, future directions of technology and what was for them uh, quite concerning. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is really amusing. Yeah, I found it. I was, it was just one of those, you're sort of flipping through different documents and, and uh, I came across that and I thought, you know, I, I, I know how the story ends here, which we don't always, we don't always know in, in history and how big of an impact that obviously had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if you could um, put on your Nostradamus hat a little bit and address that third motivation you mentioned, sort of a future orientation. Um, what sort of implications does your work have for present day um, policymakers, perhaps technologists, but also for a general public uh, thinking about and charged with making decisions um, about technologies that have the potential to powerfully reshape the economy, the society, our society, and um, 
all of history going forward? Right. That's a big question. I'll try and be, I'll try and be succinct. Um, I guess the, the sort of, um, I mean, there are, there are a few strands here. So one is to, to, uh, I'd like to push back a little bit against some economists who like to say, we don't need to worry about technological unemployment, um, that it's a transient phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it might be, it might be, uh, it might appear short term in that eventually the industrial revolution technology did lead to higher living standards. But there were people who were unemployed for uh, who lost jobs and didn't find secure employment for sometimes decades. So we need to be uh, aware of that, aware that it's a potential uh, potential pitfall. Um, We also need to be aware of the potential for technological change to increase inequality. So Mm -hmm. this is pretty well studied in terms of income. Um, What I try to contribute is a, a broader sense of inequality of life or inequality of well-being, and that can uh, that can occur or that can develop on dimensions that are maybe less easily um, measured, easily regulated than just hours and, um, and earnings, right? So things like occupational safety are, are an example or the control that people have over their jobs. So that's something to be aware of if there's large technological changes um, in the future that there may be greater inequality of, of well-being between different jobs. But at the same time, there's some mechanisms, there's some policy levers um, that uh, the politicians can look at. So eventually in the 19th century, you do have regulation of um, occupational safety and hours in factories and textile factories and other factories. Occupational safety on railroad increase in railroads becomes a concern of the US government at the end of the 19th century. Um, you know, these are not costless interventions. There do have to be factory inspectors to actually ensure that the, the regulations are followed. But there are some mechanisms, there's some levers the government does have um, to improve jobs on certain, on certain dimensions. And uh, worker power in the form of unionization can also, be very, can also be very significant. Now, it depends a little bit on what the parameters of the union are. So one of the examples I look at is, um, uh, is in the UK, the, uh, what are called the mule spinners or self-actor minders. So these are men, adult men who are... Um, in relatively highly paid um, positions that require quite a bit of um, sort of on-the-job training. And they have a very strong union in cotton spinning at the end of the 19th century. Um, They are then able to restrict entry into their jobs and also to make sure that their jobs remain relatively highly paid and relatively highly esteemed. So for them, the picture is relatively good. However, they don't really extend those benefits to other workers. So Unionization can be beneficial, but not necessarily for ununionized workers. Then if we sort of think through to the um, uh, f- thinking forward, how, what, what other implications does this have is all of, all of sort of all of what I said needs to be balanced against the fact that these technologies do have big benefits and future innovation potentially also has big benefits. So there's a, basically a balance that needs to be struck between on the one hand, how do you reap the gains from, say, AI that allows us to replace um, a lot of tedious or dangerous occupations in, say, logistics, um, or to extend the reach of um, healthcare provision to more people um, at lower cost? So, how do you balance those against the um, well-being of people as workers? So, people are consumer consumers. They consume healthcare. They we consume products that we want to have delivered to us, but we're also workers. And that politicians need to basically look at both sides of the ledger. What tended to happen in the 19th century was we really looked at the consumer side of the ledger and 
took relatively little interest for many decades um, on the quality of jobs side of the ledger. But we know that impacts people's well-being. So there's a, it's important to try and strike a balance between uh, between those two those two aspects of it and uh, ensure that the the benefits of technological change are, are broadly spread. Well, Ben, this is just a fascinating project, and I thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Yeah, thanks for letting me come on the show. Absolutely. And to the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>